Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about the PERS occurrence in the U.S. breeding herd. And joining us is Dr. Cesar Corzo of the University of Minnesota. How are you doing today, Cesar? I'm doing very well, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to have you on. You had a great presentation at Lehman Conference a couple or three weeks ago, I think now it was. And I'd love for you to be on the Popular Pig podcast to share with our audience what you presented there. If you could start out just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how did you end up at the University of Minnesota? Yes, Matthew, that's a, that's an interesting question because I have to go back to, I want to say, 1999, 2000s, which is when I fell in love with pigs um, back in Colombia. So I'm originally uh, from Colombia. And um, that's when I met uh, the beautiful world of, uh, of the pig industry. Uh, actually going to farms that were going through a purse outbreak, you know, and uh, there weren't that many answers at the time. I, I know that there was so much uncertainty. That's when I started uh, reading a little bit more. Um, so I graduated uh, in 2002. Then I went to the University of Guelph, got my master's there, uh, working with uh, Dr. Bob Friendship. And uh, I did a little bit about on uh, epidemiology of uh, Lausonia, Iliaires. Then I went back home. Joined the technical services team um, uh, at Elanco. So I was there for almost four years. And that's when uh, Dr. Bob Morrison invited me to the University of Minnesota to pursue a PhD uh, degree. So between uh, Dr. Morrison and Dr. Marie Cohane, uh, I worked with uh, on PERS and flu. Uh, then I went to PAC and uh, Worked, uh, worked uh, basically in Latin America, doing all the all the health team, leading the health team, um, doing health assurance and health services, and that's when I, that research question, that uh, wanting to know, wanting to characterize, uh, wanting to develop uh, new strategies, uh, help finding answers clicked again, and that's when I joined the University of Minnesota in 2017. So that's kind of a Almost two decades of my career summarized in 30 seconds. <laughs> so since joining the University of Minnesota, what brought you to speak at Lehman? So when I joined the University of Minnesota, I joined as the Lehman, the Lehman Chair in Swine Health and Productivity, which is a, it's a endowed position that, uh, every, that, that the person that holds that position is going to be there for five years. And the idea is for that person to try to uh, be the catalyst for certain ideas, right? To bring innovation, to try to connect dots. So because of that, and because of uh, some tragic events like uh, Dr. Morrison's passing in 2017, I inherited the Morrison Swine Health Monitoring Project, 
And that's what uh, has keeping me busy. And that's what we said, hey, let's just give a quick review on the purse occurrence at the Lemon Conference, just because there's been some uh, uh, confusion, misinterpretation of our data. So we thought this is the perfect opportunity. Gotcha. So hopping into the Perzo currents in the U.S. breeding herd, I'd love just to start by asking you what some of the trends are over the past 20 or past 12 years that you guys have been able to identify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's good that you highlight that this is, uh, this is data that has been um, collected for more than a decade, right? From a, I want to say that it started with a handful of systems providing data voluntarily. Today, we have 38 systems that give us on a weekly basis uh, their data. They tell us how many hertz broke or how many hertz uh, reached stability or how many hertz reached uh, the naive, the status four category. So we get to see this as a thermometer. And throughout time, we were able to see that PERS has kind of a seasonality behavior. You know, it's kind of seasonal. We see trends very clearly in that breeding herds start uh, becoming infected sometime during the fall into the winter. And then that's where the main part of the outbreaks occur, right? And then late uh, winter, early spring, the number of outbreaks decrease. Now, that has been the, the rule pretty much for the 12 years. Um, it begins mid-October, mid-November. We cross our threshold, and then we end up uh, late winter, uh, early spring. Now, one thing that uh, I do have to highlight is that we call it uh, seasonal, but that doesn't mean that during late spring or early summer, summer, or late summer, there's no breaks. No, there's quite a bit of breaks during that time of the year. And we've been able to quantify that. And it's easily quarter million sows that break in that window of time. So it's a, it's a significant uh, number of sows that uh, go through infections during that time of the year. So out of our database, which is pretty much 3.5 million sows, we see that a quarter million sows tend to go through these outbreaks during the summer. So that's the kind of a, the main trend. The other thing that we've seen with that data is uh, that I call it hotspots in the sense that, uh, as you know very well, Matthew, uh, pig production tends to cluster in space, right? So we have regions within the U.S., regions within Canada, other countries around the world, where there's way more pigs than maybe we would like to see. Uh, but of course, I'm sure there's a reason for that. And we tend to see that throughout the year, some of these areas tend to have uh, more breaks than others, right? So for instance, we see that in the summer or, or, or the hot uh, months, we see some activity in Southern Minnesota and Northern Iowa, right? And then during the fall, we see a little bit, of, a little bit in, in the Midwest or Southeast, uh, right? So we tend to see those behaviors that we say, hmm, what is the data telling us, right? So those are the trends that we see. So again, it's highly clustered in time and space uh, that has been published. Uh, actually, Juan Sanhuesa, a postdoc of us, uh, he created a nice piece of uh, a nice paper that it's out there. And that kind of relates to that, right? So we see that time and season uh, and location, of course, they play a, an important role. Do you see a difference in against your trends in regards to the last year and a half with PERS? Has PERS 144 broken some of those trends or what have you seen there? 
Yes, and that's a good question, you know, and I think that's uh, that's part of the confusion from last year because we started seeing this odd behavior in finishing picks at the end of uh, at the end of 2020, uh, and this was mainly southern Minnesota. So we said, okay, this is this is odd, this is different. Again, it was during the fall, so it's expected. Uh, then, of course, that virus started showing up in winning hurts in southern Minnesota as well. Uh, we went through the typical outbreak, fall, winter. Uh, however, this virus kind of behaved differently in the sense that it broke that trend, in the sense that during the summer uh, or late spring, summer, um, we saw another epidemic. So when, when, when you get to see your reports, you'll see that our epidemic, it starts, like I said, mid-October, mid-November, and it ends somewhere late uh, late winter, early spring. However, there's this one uh, second wave that is mainly due to 144 that we saw during the summer, right? Late spring, early summer. And it was an important uh, wave, you know, what we call the second wave of 144. So that kind of uh, raised a lot of questions of what happened this year. What is different about this virus that uh, it behaved this way this year? And it's not because it's an emerging new uh, new variant. Well, no, in the last 10 years, we've seen, I think it was 174 and 173 that uh, did a little bit of noise. It didn't behave like this one here, right? In the sense that uh, we saw another epidemic during the warmer months of the year. Hmm. So... I guess, why is it so hard to understand the how or why of PERS getting into a farm? From all of this data, why, why, what makes that part so hard? Yes, and, uh, and, and you know what? There's so many moving pieces and there's so many uh, factors going into this because we have, on one hand, we have the host. What, is the, what does the host have to do with this? Maybe not much, you know, he might be the, yeah, the magnet for all these viruses in some cases, but then we have the pathogen and then we have the environmental conditions. That's what what we call the epidemiologic triad. I think that at some point uh, we thought we we understood very well transmission in the sense that, yeah, we know that we can transmit this by uh, semen, uh, infected gills, uh, fomites, you know, contaminated fomites like uh, transport. Then uh, uh, airborne transmission, it's, it could be another possibility. Now feed seems to be another possibility. What we don't know is exactly how it gets in uh, through those doors, right? Because I think most of these viruses go to the main door um, in the sense that we either bring it ourselves, uh, either with semen or Semen doesn't seem to be one of the reasons today, but it was at some point, uh, either through through gills, either through fomites, who knows what else. And between the introduction and the clinical signs, or when we detect that something is off at the farm, there's a lag. We don't know if it's one week, two weeks, a month. There's been cases in which they say, hey, they went all seropositive. That means that at least two, three weeks, the virus has been going around, but there's no abortions. Uh, yeah, maybe some maybe some pre-weaning mortality, but not. So there's a lag there that when we do the go ahead and, and conducted some investigations, 
there's always so many things that have happened that we may have not made that click of, hey, this could have been the one. Yeah, we can come up with a lot of theories, but we won't be able to say or pinpoint it was the dirty truck, it was the feed, it was the, uh, the guilt until we do that investigation in a timely manner and we go and get uh, some testing done and uh, we put all the pieces of the puzzle. So I think that's one one of the limitations that we have today, that it's so hard to say or pinpoint all these hurts uh, became positive just because of guilt, all these hurts because of, uh, I don't know, a contaminated uh, truck or this one was airborne or this one was feed. So because of that, it's kind of hard to say we better be careful with this or that, which mm-hmm. brings us to biosecurity has to be a package, right? It, won't, it can't only be only transport, only filtration. No, it's got to be the whole package so that we try to protect the herd uh, from all those different standpoints. Otherwise, we can do a, a very good job on these two areas. But if we're not good in the, in the other one where we think uh, it won't come to here, uh, you can come back and bite us. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, what are some of the stories that the data tells you sometimes? What are some of the things that you pull from it that make you really think? Oh, I think I think the latest one, uh, Matthew, and I think this is one that uh, first is good at uh, generating frustration in the industry, you know, and uh, you know that very well. And uh, both practitioners and producers, uh, every year they have this level of frustration. And I think one for four, to me, it kind of uh, generate again another chapter of frustration, which is when we look at the data and because we get to see where in the U.S. 144 has striked, uh, we get to map those farms and we get to map those farms that have broke, that have had an introduction of another virus or those that haven't. We look at those maps, Matthew, and we can see that farms that broke with 144 are clustered in time and space. That's kind of interesting. It follows the natural pattern of disease spread. However, within those clusters, we see that, yeah, it's full of positive farms. But there's farms that have not, or that have prevented, perhaps that's the word, uh, or have kept the virus out. What I'm trying to say is that we've had or we have cases in which there are first negative farms a, a mile to miles away from positive farms, positive to this uh, strain or to other strains. But specifically for the 144, the lineage 1C, we have seen that quite a bit in the sense that how come we see them cluster in time, which is fine, that's a statistical test, but how come some of those within that same cluster, we see them, they are survivors, if you want to call it that way, in yeah. the sense that we've had two waves of this. Well, first, the, the main, the, the regular first wave that we know that the 144 was there, but the second wave, which was mainly due to 144 lineage 1C, and they have survived. And that's when you start thinking, how come I heard that it's a mile away, which we think, oh, Airborne transmission should be pretty easily. It should be effective that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, how come they survived? Maybe we know that there's some filter, filtered farms, but in some cases, there's non-filtered farms as well in there. But we know that they share some resources because they are within the same company. They share some, uh, they do rendering. So they have all kind of the same risk factors. And we say, how come this one didn't get infected? 
and we can't explain it. So it makes us scratch our head and say, what are we missing here? And that one of the practitioners that we work closely with is, I think it has been brought up a few times and, 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 and it has been well communicated. We may be doing a poor job in some farms and in other, we're doing a good job from a compliance standpoint. Is that the, is that the case for most of these farms? I don't know, but uh, I clearly think that that could be a possibility. Well, if, if that's the major case, then it really plays down the significance of airborne transmission, right? Well, you know, it, it can happen. Yeah, it can happen. Airborne transmission, I think, can happen. But then, like all those farms that go into the investment of, let, let's place filters, let's retrofit these barns. I'm sure that they won't do that until they have the rest of the package already uh, in place. So that's when you start thinking, yep, even if I have a filter farm, but if I make a very little mistake, it's going to come and bite me. So I think that uh, it can downplay it, yes or no. But I think it's just the package, you know, that in some cases the package works very well. And in some cases it doesn't. So like I tell sometimes students, you know, whenever you're addressing a problem, you need to address it from every single standpoint possible, you know, because if you if you go into a case where you have high mortality, uh, don't let your mind fool you thinking that it's always an infectious disease. It can be, I don't know, some toxicity. It could be, I don't know, the weather related, temperature related, something like that, you know? So I think it's same thing for, for biosecurity. Gotcha. So as a segue from that, that would be really good to go into now that we are entering per season. It would be interesting to get some of your recommendations on how producers can best prepare whether that's their team or their operations for this for this fall, you know, and and I think it it it, uh, it won't change as with other other fall seasons, if you want to call it that way, or or like with other years. And I, I think the recommendation would be to let's go back to the basics, right? And let's just make sure that we review what we think we should be doing. Uh, let's review those protocols that are in place and let's just make sure that we audit that, right? And uh, it may take several audits to catch, hey, maybe we're doing this thing wrong here. Maybe we missed this little detail here because I feel like human behavior is always going to be the trickiest part, you know? And, uh, and I always use my example of the doctor told me you need to cut your, your fat intake because you have a fatty liver. Have I done it? No, I have not done it, you know. Uh, or the person that has uh, some uh, congestive heart failure related disease, you know, have you, do they, are they really good at complying with taking uh, their, their medicine every single day? Or the typical dentist story, you need to brush your teeth three times a day. Do people do it? There's going to be a lot of cases in which they don't do it. So when we use those examples of compliance, I say, well, Think about what we're asking our people every single day at the farm. All these protocols, are they doing it correctly? In some farms, maybe they'll do it uh, 85% of the time correctly. The other 15, uh, more or less. Uh, or it could be much worse, you know, 70 really well, 10 more or less. And then we have 20% when we say, okay, we are at risk. So I think my message is, Let's go back to the basics. Let's review what our procedures, what our procedures are or should be. Let's make sure that they get done. 
uh, uh, in a way that we minimize, we decrease that risk of introduction, you know? So that's one. The other one is if you're going to be using vaccines, uh, make sure that those get uh, well, well injected, you know? Uh, I know that there's some uh, half dosing going out there. Just, I would always say, would you have dosed the COVID vaccine for your family members? Maybe, maybe not, you know, I would, I would use a full dose. And then the last one is just keep that training going, you know, let's just keep training our teams. We know that we have some labor challenges, you know, very well. Uh, how do we train them? Are we training them correctly? Are we challenging them enough? Uh, are they embracing that uh, biosecurity culture, you know, because we can, I can train you and I, I can get trained, but do I understand why I'm doing this? Uh, do, am I embracing this culture or not? You know, so. So do you think that part of compliance is an element of understanding the purpose, but then also understanding the consequence? I think those two are going to be, uh, going to be uh, factors related to it, but I also think and we had this one session, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago at the Lehman Conference, in which we had two individuals uh, talking about personality. And there's some personalities that will embrace it way, way faster and will implement better than others. You know, like, like human nature, you know, we have that diversity in human, in the human population that some people are better at uh, cleaning and organizing their, their desk than others, you know. It's human nature. I think that the same thing would happen with biosecurity. And they were able to demonstrate to us that uh, I wish we could always go out there and select our employees based on those personalities. The thing is that we don't have a a large pool of people to pick from uh, because I think it's going to be that, you know, it's going to be a mixture of all those factors so that we can reach a good level of compliance. Yeah, it's it's going to be your your more outgoing, innovative people who are going to be breaking SOPs that are also helping you find opportunity. But in biosecurity, we're not the risk of opportunity of how do you get better is a lot, a lot less enticing than the risk of uh, let's just not change anything and get and get uh, and get purged. So it's it is interesting because I know as me as an individual, I was always looking for that next that next edge. But I know I never messed with biosecurity. You just listen to what people tell you there, because if you try to innovate around that and screw up, the cost is too great. And and you know what? And and we're using biosecurity as an example. But the other example that I use uh, for others is so I, I I had the the fortune to work with one gentleman that is kind of well known in the industry, Juan Carlos Pinilla. He's with PIC, and he clearly gave me a nice example of compliance in the sense that Juan Carlos was always trying to make sure that people understood how important guilds are, how important guild development is, but also how important the breeding time is. You know, if you really want to get to a farrowing rate of 90%, you need to excel in that procedure, right? And that's compliance again. You need to have the board here. You need to have the doses aligned here. You need to have a a good enough uh, system to detect uh, all these cells in heat. And you have to have good people doing the process, right? So another example of compliance, which is not biosecurity, but it's kind of biology. Yeah. And and you see that in farms, you know. Some farms are really good at breeding, detecting heat, awesome farming rates, uh, and others, they may have an awesome building, brand new farm, 
but maybe they're not really good at complying with the breeding purpose. Same thing for biosecurity, you know. So I think it's kind of interchangeably in the sense that it's about the people that get to implement all these protocols. For sure. So when we look at a producer and let's say they do get PERS, what should they be doing? What should they, how, how should they be reacting, especially if they are already connected with the University of Minnesota and your program? What are the things that, that they should be focused on? So we're fortunate enough that, uh, that uh, Dr. Morrison developed this uh, trust, right, that, uh, that we're fortunate to carry that, um, and they report to us, so we get to use that data. But at the farm level, I think pretty much all of the participants that we have, they already have plans or interventions in place. Uh, we get to see a lot of companies uh, acting very rapidly from a segregation standpoint. So if a farm breaks with 144, they always try to think about, are we mixing any flows downstream? You know, How can mm-hmm. we mitigate this spread within our system? How can we try to avoid this dissemination throughout the region, right? So they're always thinking on that, you know. Sometimes it's hard to do, right, because the machine is producing so many pigs so fast, one. And two, sometimes we just catch it a little bit too late, and it has already gone out the doors, right? So I know that they're doing a lot of mitigation when it comes to minimizing that impact outside or within the system and outside the system. So that's one. But I also hear or we also see that a lot of systems are really aggressive with PERS and immediately they start working towards the stability and then elimination, right? So we get to see that on our data in which I think it's 40% of the farms are always staying naive or if I want to say either naive or stable, we can increase that number to, I want to say 60 to 70. It kind of varies a little bit, but we're always seeing that if a virus gets in, the progressive veterinarians that we have in the industry today, which I think we're lucky about it, eh, they're always working towards how am I going to get this virus out of this herd as soon as, as I can, right? Just because of the financial implications, not only the breeding side of it, but also in the downstream side of things, right? Because we don't want to produce virulent pigs that are going to crash a few weeks after weaning, right? Because they just won't eat and mortality and co-infections, well, yeah. that, that's going to have a, a high toll on, on the financial aspect. So what are the next steps for us as an industry around PERS? You know, I think that's a, that's a big question, Matthew, and I wish I had a good answer, but I'm going to speculate here in the sense that uh, I think that because we have so much diversity, you know, there's a new strain coming out, I don't know, five, maybe four or five years, six years, uh, I think that we're going to have to figure out a way to really focus on how can we prevent a between farm transmission. What does that mean? Is it is it filtering more? Is it vaccinating more? Is it uh, segregating a little bit better? Is it moving moving pigs fewer miles? You know what I'm trying to say by that is why do I need to move pigs to a barn that it's located I don't know 200 miles away from the breeding herd? Can't I move them 10, 20 miles away from my breeding farm? So sometimes I envision that if I have a south farm, I would like to have that farm surrounded by my own growing finishing sites, not by other systems growing finishing sites, right? Because I can use that as a buffer, one. Two, I can use that as a monitoring 
uh, tool, right? I can just test those those are growing pace and it'll tell them, it'll tell me there's a new virus getting closer. Let's just depopulate that site. That'll be a way to protect me. Um, so I feel like we need to start thinking about it, rethinking the process. Uh, and then the other thing that I feel like we need to start uh, pushing, not that it's not being done today, but I think it's, it, it, it can be, it can be done by more producers is not reaching that endemic, a face of PERS. Some people say, yep, yeah, I'm willing to live with it. I'll just vaccinate. I'll just acclimate my guilt. And, uh, but I won't work towards stability or towards elimination. And I'm saying this just because the more we keep a wild-type virus in a sow farm, the higher the chances of that wild-type, uh, if the herd breaks again, that wild-type, the old one, may see the new wild type, and then that's when we start seeing some recombination. So same pig, so one pig gets infected with those two viruses, and then we start helping the virus do its job, by right? Generating new variants, mm-hmm. and that's what gets us in trouble, right? So I feel like uh, the more we can push those wild type viruses out of our breeding herds, the better, because we will contribute to minimizing diversity, which is our main problem today. Too many viruses all over the place, and we're mixing too many different kinds of populations. The vaccinated, the non-vaccinated, the vaccinated with wild type, or the non-vaccinated with wild type. That uh, it's hard to it's hard to make those four populations uh, live <laughs> peacefully, if you want to call it that way. <laughs> for sure. No, and thanks for such a comprehensive overview, and and uh, I guess wrap-up of of PERS and its occurrence in the U.S. breeding herd. Before we close things down, I, I want to ask you a couple questions. The first being, what's something about you that most of your colleagues do not know? Huh. That's, a, that's a good one. Um, you know, I would, say, I would say that most of my colleagues do not know that I'm a frustrated car racing driver. Um, I love speed when I'm in a car. I get to do that every now and then, what we call the track day. So I go with my little daily drive Civic to a track that it's a couple hours away. And uh, I just go there and uh, compete against myself. So I have this little device that gives me how 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 quickly I go around the track and time I time myself. And then I compare those times with others, you know. That has brought a lot of uh, joy just because I go in my little Civic and I tend to lap faster than individuals that go to the track and their cars are worth maybe four or five times what mine is worth. <laughs> that they have all these huge engines, but uh, they don't know how to drive them. So that, that brings me a lot of joy. So uh, yeah, so car racing speed, that's one thing that um, I'm a Formula One fan. I've been to Formula One races uh, I did a little bit of uh, amateur racing back home, but uh, it's just an expensive sport. So, I mean, that's why I say I'm a frustrated car racing driver. Yeah, they're they're headed to Austin, Texas here next, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I've been to it's Austin. It's been a good year. There's been a lot of parody in this, this season. Yeah, we were waiting for that. You know, we were waiting for that. So uh, it'll come down to the wire until the last race. So uh, finally, we get to see a lot of excitement in Formula One. I actually got a iRacing 
rig a couple of years ago. So that's been pretty fun. I was a big sprint car fan. So being able to hop on the dirt tracks and run that, but I've been doing some formula one uh, as well, which has been a ton of fun. Um, outside of that, uh, what's one golden nugget that you might leave to all of the listeners here today? One golden nugget, you know, um, I feel like the golden nugget, it's hard to come up with that one, but, uh, my golden nugget has always been to whenever you're faced with a challenge, uh, let's say today, we have a challenge uh, um, within my group in the sense that we need to figure out a problem. We always try to get closer with veterinarians, you know, which is, yeah, or epidemiologists. Well, now I've learned that uh, you can bring in engineers, you know, um, mathematicians, right, uh, physicists, um, people from other areas that have nothing uh, related to your area and if you explain to them what the problem is and give them some background they'll, they'll start asking you questions Matthew, questions that you say I never thought about that yeah. ever in my life um, and I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be part of the secure food systems with uh, Dr. Scarl Cardona Marie Cohen and Tim Goldsmith and there's some engineers in the team and statisticians uh, assessing risk for uh, for African swine fever, and the questions they ask are very basic questions that, in some cases, we had never thought about. And we said, "How come we never thought about it?" And it's because <laughs> we just have so much information that we just get we're drowning in information, and we're I think we're complicating ourselves. So I said, "Hey, let's just bring in people from other areas that have nothing to do with us, that they will see the problem from a different standpoint." And they will help us solve the problem, you know, or make us think to the to the process in which may lead us to a solution. So, yeah. Gotcha. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I couldn't agree more. We've been doing a whole lot of innovation in the sow farm and around labor and around the biology of the pig and having us, I guess, a group of engineers who were from the aerospace industry come into the sow and sow farm and work in the sow farm and then step out and start asking different kinds of questions. It really made us think through a lot of things differently. And I think that is what allows any industry to take that next step forward is just the diversity of, of opinions and thoughts and, and of, and of skill sets. I agree, I agree, and you know what? The main, the, the main lesson for me is this. This forces us to slow down and think about it. You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to let, let's just generate. No, let's slow down and think about it, and uh, yeah, let's let's get to that answer as quick as possible. Well, thank you, Caesar, for joining the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you on here today, and uh, I thank you on behalf of all of our listeners today. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. 
learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.